Welcome to this three-part roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Challenges in Managing Acute Bleeding in Patients with Hemophilia. This discussion was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, Inc. It was recorded in December 2012 during the 47th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in Las Vegas. Dr. William Dager is chair of the initiative, and he is pharmacist specialist at UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, California. In part one of this podcast series, Dr. Dager and Dr. Mark Redding, director of the Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders at the University of Minnesota Medical Center, Fairview in Minneapolis, discuss issues related to monitoring and dosing blood factor products when managing acute bleeding in patients with hemophilia. Hello, my name is William Dager. I have the pleasure of having Dr. Mark Redding joining me today, so I'd like to welcome Mark. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're here today talking about some of the issues faced with uh, managing uh, hemophiliac patients. This provides several challenges to us because there's obviously several forms of hemophilia. These patients can transition from one that can take a certain therapy and then develop inhibitors by which the therapy has to be altered or they could have uh, acute bleeding situations where we need to readdress the therapy to manage the bleeding. So there is a fair amount of individualized therapy that's involved with these cases when they're being managed in the setting of bleeding or, or a procedure or something that might put them at high risk for bleeding. So these are dilemmas that we face as pharmacists is making sure that what's being planned is really the right or best therapy for the patient and also are we prepared for what changes may come ahead of the patient? And have we thought about this in advance so that there's no delays in really implementing these therapies, especially when the patient may be having increased uh, bleeding concerns? So I'd like to ask you, Mark, when we look at these clotting factors that we give patients who are hemophiliac, I think it's a real challenge to know how to put the first initial dosing together what kind of doses might you start out with uh, with these patients? What would be some of your thoughts on that? Well, I think the, the first thing to recognize is that the information that's available in the package insert is a good place to start. But the, I think the thing that's the most important to remember, particularly when managing an acute or actively bleeding patient, is that it's really a dynamic process and ideally requires close monitoring of the patient clinically but also close monitoring of their coagulation parameters and ideally factor levels. And then we make dose adjustments from there. So, you know, recognizing where to start is, is good, but understanding that this is really a dynamic ongoing uh, process that requires, you know, frequent evaluation and reevaluation and, and then subsequent dose adjustments. Most of what, you know, is in the package insert doesn't really discuss management of an actively acutely bleeding patient from the perspective of this dynamic changing process. And so it's a place to start, but you've got to be able to modify things as things evolve over time. Now, part of that is, okay, we get the order, we put something into place as far as the initial therapy. But then the question is, what are we going to monitor? And based on those observations, how do we know when it's important to make an adjustment in the therapy? How often should we be monitoring these patients, and what kind of tools would you think about monitoring? I know as pharmacists, we think about, gee, what is the factor level or such, but I think we also have to remind ourselves that what's going on at the bedside is also important. What insights do you have relative to the monitoring of these therapies? 
Uh, well, yeah, you really you know, hit the nail on the head as far as the specific things to look at. There's the clinical assessment of the patient. So, you know, we monitor for stability of the blood pressure and pulse, the hemodynamic parameters. We can follow hemoglobin to assess for evidence of internal bleeding. But really, knowing what the factor level is is crucial here because there are many reasons a patient can have bleeding, especially a surgical patient. And if there's lab or clinical evidence of bleeding, it may or may not be due to hemophilia. And the only way to, to sort of rule that out is to know that the factor level is in a hemostatically appropriate range. And so it really involves monitoring both clinical and general lab parameters and also, you know, specifically knowing what the factor level is. So for our acutely bleeding patients in our center and, and for those undergoing major surgeries, we often we use a continuous infusion of factor product after an initial bolus to get them up to a normal level. And the reason I like to do that is because on a continuous infusion, theoretically, they're at steady state, and we can check a factor level at any point in time and know exactly where they are. And if I get a call from the surgeon or from the bedside nurse saying we think the patient's bleeding, I can check a factor level and know whether or not the bleeding may be related to inadequate amount of clotting factor replacement. So it's important to keep that in mind. Not all bleeding in these patients is going to be due to hemophilia. If they're replaced appropriately with the missing factor, they could still have bleeding from either an anatomic lesion or bleeding from the surgical site itself. And so it's important to keep all those uh, all those things in mind. You know, when you look at, too, this clotting factor, because you bring that up and it's a, a laboratory value we might actually see in the places we're making decisions on sending out the next dose or such. You know, I hear sometimes you want to go up to 150% even for the high, and sometimes you see it like, well, if we can keep it at 70%, we're doing okay. Yeah. So there's a big range in there as far as what's acceptable. How do you think we should um, deal with this? It seems like almost some, some initial guidance from the orders as far as or, or notes saying these are the target levels uh, will be helpful in us knowing where we want to be and also to be alert, to be able to alert uh, the appropriate clinicians. If we see, for example, an increase the dose in the last clotting factor level percentage was 130%. It seems like good communication safeguards are going to help make sure that we're all on the same page. Oh, yeah, that that's crucial to do this properly and to avoid you know, overdosing and wasting factor, which is uh, obviously very expensive. You know, there's a lot of debate about what the ideal factor level should be uh, in these patients, and, and I'll say it's very individualized. A lot of how we manage this depends on who and where trained you. So, you know, I have my way of doing it. Um, I have colleagues in other centers that do it a little bit differently. And, and so there's no one right answer. The The normal range for factor eight and factor nine in most labs is somewhere between 60% and 140%, somewhere in that neighborhood. So it's a, it's a, it's a very broad range. We, we sort of think of 100% as, as normal, but the normal range does go down lower than that. And, and so the amount of factor that you need on board to stop bleeding and prevent re-bleeding is going to vary depending on the circumstances, depending on the location of bleeding. And we have to be mindful of that. And so the other issue here that creeps into the discussion is that there aren't really good studies that have defined what's the minimum factor level that you need to adequately treat and prevent bleeding. No one's done sort of dose-finding studies to define that. And so a lot of the guidelines and parameters that we use have been derived empirically over the years. I think it's safe to say that, you know, you don't need a factor level above 100% to 
prevent bleeding. Oftentimes we'll aim for just a little over 100% initially to make sure that the bleeding is stopped and also to account for the fact that there can be some excess consumption of factor during the initial bleeding or the initial surgical period until things are, are, are shored up hemostatically. And once you've gotten past that point, which is usually about 24 hours, you know, then factor levels, as long as they're maintained in a normal range, which could go down all the way to 60 or 70%, depending on your lab, should be adequate to prevent rebleeding. You know, again, it really varies on the circumstances, but uh, I think the tendency in the U.S. Uh, is to uh, sort of over-treat uh, relative to what other, other countries do. And that's partly just because we have different availability of factor. And, but it's, it's you know, important to recognize that more isn't necessarily necessary or better. And in fact, we do worry about over-replacement of, of factor potentially predisposing patients to risk for thrombosis. And so, so it goes both ways. And I agree with what you said earlier, Bill, that you know, really effective communication between uh, whoever's making the dose adjustments and the pharmacy is important so that we're not you know, mixing up doses and sending up uh, inappropriately large or small doses to the floor before uh, all those assessments have been made and communicated. So communication is really, really key here. And, and, you know, knowing that, you know, obviously there's different degrees of bleeding that can occur. In general, I think sometimes we wonder whether the level on a continuous infusion can be a little lower than that when you're looking at bolus therapy, especially when you're looking at something close after a dose is given. Yet I've also heard of strategies of just checking at a certain interval to see that you're at least above a certain level deciding on when the next dose may be given on a, a given interval. Yeah, and I'm talking about you know obviously factor eight's most common therapy we're uh, utilizing these things in, but it can surely affect the others. Any thoughts as far as you know? One is the factor eight level in general targeted usually a little lower if you're on a continuous infusion versus a bolus if you're looking at peak, or what kind of difference between that a continuous infusion level maybe say a more trough like level of factor? Do you think there's some unique differences or, or things to consider when you look at these levels with these various ways we're uh, administering the blood factors? Yeah, I prefer to use continuous infusion for acutely bleeding patients uh, or those undergoing you know, major surgeries. And, and that, that, that's partly a bias of how I was trained. But, but the, the advantage of it um, from a pharmacokinetic standpoint is you avoid the peaks and troughs. And so, you know, when you're checking a factor level, it doesn't matter when you check it relative to the last dose, it's going to be theoretically at a steady state. And the problem with peaks and troughs uh, that we see with bolus therapy is you don't really know what the patient's half-life is. You know, the average half-life for factor eight, for example, is somewhere around 12 hours, but some patients have half-lives that are significantly shorter than that. We have some patients in our center who have half-lives of more like six hours. And unless you know that information ahead of time, you could certainly be caught uh, by surprise expecting a trough to be at a certain place and, in fact, finding out that it's much lower than that uh, because the patient's cleared the factor more quickly. And so unless you have very detailed pharmacokinetic data about your individual patient ahead of time, there's really no way to know that kind of thing. So it's much more of a moving target with bolus therapy, and uh, at least in the management of an acute bleeding patient or a patient with major surgery and high risk for bleeding, I think the continuous infusion offers a lot of advantages. I'm not aware of any good studies that have looked at, you know, uh, do we use more or less factor? In our own center, we've looked at it sort of not in a study format, but just retrospectively looked at it. I, I think we tend to use a bit less we don't give extra doses just to be sure. We have them on a continuous infusion. We know exactly where they're at. 
I think overall we probably use a bit less factor that way. And it's just because they're at steady state and don't have to worry about making sure the trough stays above a certain level because I know exactly where I'm at with it. So I, I think that's a fairly common practice around the country. I won't say it's necessary for every surgery. Certainly the more minor surgeries, we, we don't need to do that. But for the big stuff and for the acutely bleeding patient, something like a GI bleed, I think it offers a lot of advantages. You know, I have one question, too, I, I constantly get from my colleagues, and, and I can share with you that as far as dosing based on weight, I have in, in practice have a tendency to disuse ideal body weight because it more mimics the blood volume of a patient. So if I have someone who's notably obese, I'll probably dose more on their ideal body weight and then use the thought that if they're having major bleeding, we might use a higher dose but still use that ideal body weight as a foundation for all future dosing. What are your thoughts about that in practice? Yeah, I think there's definitely been a move to that uh, in the last few years. Certainly, uh, I'm sure in part driven by the, the high cost of factor products. We certainly don't want to use any more than we absolutely need to. And as I mentioned earlier, theoretically, if you give too much, you could potentially put the patient at risk for excess clotting. I think the literature is starting to address this issue and more of some papers that have looked at this. And I think in general, most of us would agree that ideal body weight is an appropriate way to dose, especially for the significantly overweight patient. And that's, that's what we've moved to in our center over the last couple of years. Now, one of the things we face, too, is what should be, you know, on our formulary. Some hospitals may be hemophilia centers and other hospitals may be managing the, the bleeding patient uh, who's a hemophiliac, but they're not necessarily uh, prepared as a hemophilia center, but they may see this on an occasional basis. It seems like a good way to approach this is to know where these factors might be, who's the closest place if I'm a small hospital. If I have to do this, how fast can I get it? If I can't, then what do I keep on hand just to have something to initiate therapy? And sometimes I wonder about some products, like, for example, even though a patient doesn't have inhibitors mm-hmm. and they come in with factor eight deficiency, if I have something that could work with inhibitors or no inhibitors, but I, have, I can only carry a single thing, having something like uh, a recombinant factor seven or something initially just to help start managing the bleeding in a hemophilic patient maybe one strategy I can consider, and then you kind of go down to having more products available as you have more resources. Right. In, in terms of having, you know, specific products available, you touched on that earlier. You know, for a smaller hospital or a place that doesn't treat hemophilia patients routinely, you know, I think just having a single dose of a factor eight product and a single dose of a factor nine product available is appropriate. Having an adequate dose of each of them available would, would be the ideal thing and wouldn't worry so much about exactly what brand name it is. This concludes this part of the roundtable discussion. If you'd like to hear more about managing acute bleeding in patients with hemophilia, please listen to the other two parts of this podcast series. In addition, a web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in mid-February 2013. To access this activity and other educational activities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash stop bleeding.